Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Meg Munn was appointed first independent chair of the Church of England's National Safeguarding Panel in September. She took over from the Bishop of Bath and Wells, Peter Hancock, who is the lead bishop on safeguarding. Meg Munn is a practising Methodist, a former social worker and a former MP who established and chaired the all-party child protection parliamentary group. She left Parliament in 2015. Hattie Williams sat down with Meg Munn for her first interview since taking up the post. You can read a write-up of the interview in this week's paper and on our website, and a fuller version follows on this podcast. Elsewhere in this week's paper, it's our 16-page travel and retreat supplement, including features on Greece, coastal Germany, Mauritius and Uzbekistan, as well as pilgrimage routes in the UK and urban retreat houses. Madeleine Davies talks to sociologist Gladys Daniel about whether Ireland can be post-Catholic. The veteran BBC journalist John Simpson talks about church-going, books, music and his career in broadcasting. There's news on the latest tranche of Strategic Development Fund grants. The latest on Brexit and overseas news from Zimbabwe, the DRC, Iraq, Colombia and Kenya. In our comments section, the Bishop of Chelmsford, who is a member of the Lord's Select Committee on Communication, calls for regulation of the internet. And Alexander Faludi surveys the prospect for populism in Europe. Read all this and more by subscribing. Get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Since I was uh, took on the role, which was the middle of September, there's been two key aspects to to what I've been been doing. Um, one is the priority has been to focus on the panel, what uh, the, the history of the panel, what it's achieved so far, what current panel members mean, and obviously uh, that's involved. I've spoken to I think pretty much every member of the panel and take some detail on that, and we've also had our first panel meeting together which I've chaired uh, since then and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. The other aspect which is absolutely fundamentally crucial to me in able to do this role is understanding the Church of England and I put it in inverted commas because um, I think like most of the population I sort of assumed various things about the church. Um, I assumed that the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the church etc i'm a methodist i am a christian but you know you don't tend to worry about how other people organize themselves and to be frank you don't worry too much about how your church organizes like most um i would say ordinary christians if there's such a thing you know i i go to church on a sunday i get involved in other things but i I hadn't worried myself about you know the structures and organization and so that's been um and still it is quite a task I think because understanding uh, how it's organised the structures who can do what, who makes decisions about what, is obviously fundamental because if I'm concerned I and the panel are concerned about a particular aspect and how that impacts upon safeguarding unless I understand where that's coming from, we could spend a lot of time talking to the wrong people, looking in the wrong areas and alongside that clearly I've had to do an awful lot as well in understanding what the church has done is doing and hopes to do in relation to safeguarding which again is another massive area and once you start to get your head around you know 42 dioceses York and Canterbury X number of churches and then you start talking about things that people have the church label and are constructed organisation in different ways, you know, schools, the what people refer to as the TEIs, all the acronyms, the education is all of that. Plus beginning, and I stress beginning to read some of the 
uh, reports that I haven't read before. I'd read some of the more high high profile mm. reports because obviously I've got, I've got an interest in child protection and safeguarding. So I'd read some of them mm. in the past, and obviously I'd read some in in the run up to my interview. But you know, there's a massive amount to do. But I think in terms of moving forward on the panel, um, one of the key things has been to think about. Uh, revising the terms of reference so when the panel was set up it was pretty much a big part of the safeguarding because there wasn't a lot there was a joint yeah, role yeah. between the Methodists and the Church of England but there wasn't a great deal so um, the aim of talking to everybody on, on the panel and talking to key people within the National Church Institution or whatever it's called was to understand what could it and should it do and we've got um, now some draft terms updated terms of reference I mean it's not moving completely away from what it did before but whereas at the outset it was beginning to write a lot on policy um, in essence it's also uh, it's moved away from that to more commenting on policy as, as full-time people have, have been um, and employed to, to take on those roles so in essence we see the panel as doing um, two things um, one is very much continuing to be a critical friend to offer advice to bring experience from other you know sort of part of the safeguarding landscape yeah. both in terms of that generally but also in terms of other Christian uh, parts of the Christian faith you know the, the Catholics the Methodists um, and so so it's it's that but the, the second bit which is something which is very clear in my terms of reference as chair is this holding to account so really holding the church to account for what it does on safeguarding and we're splitting that down into the different areas because there are I think it's really important to understand that there are different aspects to that and that whether like it or not you have to prioritize some of that so sort of the first area is is really looking at prevention through promotion of safeguarding what's the church doing now to stop some of the dreadful things that have happened in the past happening in the future and that you know if you talk to say uh, to people who've uh, survived abuse and their families and the like a lot of them, their key thing is this shouldn't be happening, and, and if so, you know, and obviously the church wants to do something about it. So that's the number one bit. The second part of that is the how do you respond to people bringing forward concerns about what's happening now so how does the church respond to somebody who's concerned how does it respond to a disclosure and what are the policies and procedures and processes around all of that the the third bit is what do you do when somebody comes forward and says this happened to me five years ago ten years ago 20 30 yeah. what is the response to that and what is the help and support that is often uh, to survivors um, and then finally there the area is that response to survivors uh, those people are already engaged uh, quite a lot um, with the church and um, we need to oversee that uh, the church is looking at developing it, some different mechanisms for that. Obviously, they had a presentation at the Synod yeah. last July, and there were some commitments made on the back of that. Now, depending on how that work develops, we need to be complementary to that. We don't need to uh, see that. We have survivor representatives on the panel. I, I'm very. The panel's very clear, and I'm very clear we want that to continue. It's the experience of survivors, their families. Um, I mean, I. 
know from I have extended family experience of, of people uh, in my extended family being abused so uh, it's it's understanding it from the inside it's what yeah. makes it real it, it helps people to understand just the devastation that uh, these offences uh, wreak on people so we need that voice but I think it's appropriate that if the church develops separate resources separate processes that we don't duplicate that and that our priority very definitely has to be around the prevention end of things and uh, what the church is doing now. Sure, okay and obviously you've been working quite closely with survivors and hearing their stories yeah. and kind of their place yeah. in the panel. Um, what is, um, how have they taken to an independent chair because obviously this is um, the oh. first independent chair obviously you had Bishop Hank oh. before that, how have they taken to an independent chair? Um, I'd actually met uh, I think two out of the three survivors on the panel before because when I was a member of parliament I'd done some work in, the, in this area yeah. um, I, I mean I would I think I don't know I haven't asked them but I, I think uh, you know and uh, quite naturally they would probably say the jury's out because um, I'm gonna I obviously have to steer the work of the panel in a, in a particular way. I have to offer that leadership. That's part of my role. And um, I want to hear what they've got to say. I want to hear their views. I won't always agree with them. Um, I'm, we want to set up a work programme which enables us to, over a, a, a period, to very much make sure we have input at the right moment. I know one of the frustrations for the panel yeah. has been that um, sometimes they're being asked too late to comment on things so um, I'm working with the National Safeguarding Team to look at who's doing what at what moment and what might um, that mean in terms of the panel's input into that um, and I think hopefully all the panel members would welcome that not just the um, survivors and what what I have in mind, which has received a lot of support from people, is that rather than try and do lots of things and be updated on everything, that we have a programme which says in our meetings, which ideally I hope will be a little bit more frequent, that we'll have a, you know, maybe six meetings a year rather than four, is that we will look at one topic in depth and we're going to trial some different ways of doing that. Okay. Um, and as part of that hear from people read things and then the panel will need to come to a view now it may well be on a number of issues that there isn't one view sure, in the yeah. panel um, and I can imagine on some of the areas where that might might well be the case um, but we we don't know yet so we, we would trial that um, and then sort of for so that would take up two-thirds of the meeting really looking at one issue in depth and then the last part of the meeting looking much more at keeping up to date on the issues that are going checking on things and and, and really just you know doing the kind of things you need to do in any panel to make sure you're, you're moving forward so um, so far everybody seems on board with that approach we came you know I presented these ideas I fed back what I'd heard from everybody and let's see where we go on it sure sure and you mentioned your work as an MP and yeah. you're also a social worker before that yes and um, so tell me a little bit how about how that kind of work has informed the work that you're doing I was I, I was in social work for about 20 years before I stood for Parliament and my last, what I 
refer to my last proper job, was as Assistant Director for Children's Services in York. And although I'd worked across different client groups, uh, probably for the last 10 years of my social work career, I was very much focused on children. I did a lot of work on uh, child sexual abuse and all of that. So, um, and when I went into Parliament, I didn't want um, to only focus on that, but I did not want to focus on it. So, um, I was all very active on um, a lot of issues on legislation around uh, children and indeed vulnerable adults because that is a big part of what we do. Um, I chaired an all-party group which was specifically set up to um, look at some of the policies and processes, legal issues arising out of how particularly adults with learning disabilities had suffered abuse. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2010 I set up the um, all-party parliamentary group on child protection, so that's cross-party. Um, we were supported, I approached the NSPCC and they agreed to support us and we um, worked again very much let's focus on something in depth so we would have a series of seminars on an issue such as children in the court process when they were looking at speeding up the court process and then we would as I say the NSPCC on our behalf uh, published um, documents which then went to government and we got responses so it was a sort of you know all party parliamentary group select committee sure. if you like um, and so I very much kept um, in touch with the issues and the concerns and when I decided to as they call it a port to have a portfolio career when I stood down for parliament in 2015 I always wanted to carry on you know I've been in social work since I was 22 I wanted to carry on and do something in that area but until you know I'd applied for a couple of roles but until this role I hadn't had the opportunity to do that so it, it's remained a passion and an interest of, of mine and as I say I mean it's um, it wasn't a prime motivator for me, but it felt like I had something extra to bring from that because, um, as I said earlier, there's experience in my extended family, my cousins in uh, my cousin in Australia, two of his daughters were horrifically, horrifically abused um, by um, the Catholic priests when they were small children, and um, it's. I suppose it's one of the upsides of kind of globalisation that even though as growing up on different sides of the world we didn't know each other, our mm. mothers were, were sisters, but as I've become an adult and as it, we've actually had a lot of contact and been in touch quite a lot, I've been there and I've very much followed their process. Uh, my cousin and his wife were very much... Um, part of the people who persuaded the Australian government to have the Royal Commission and to go through all that that process so um, I've seen I mean devastation doesn't even cover it you know I've seen the absolute devastation that that's wrought on their family so you know I feel uh, I don't claim in any way to have the same kind of experience or insight of somebody who's suffered that themselves but you know I do know um, what that's been like and what that has been like for them in terms of trying to get the Catholic Church to pay attention um, to, to that and you know um, people lose their faith over this and you just kind of think it's <laughs> one of the problems for the church is that people think when they go to church that because people are in the church they're going to be safe you know? and actually you know my whole experience in in social work is you can never assume anybody's going to be safe and and um, of course you want everybody to do as much as they can to make that safe but people didn't in the past and to be honest I think the church has been very late to coming to realize um, what it needs to do.
think that's quite a widely held view. I mean, it's sort of too little, too late. And I think that's generally the view. And I don't know whether you found this with survivors, but the, the view is that you know the apologies kind of come in, and it's a bit like, well, that's not really enough. And remember, yeah. you said in your um, when you were yeah. first appointed, you said that apologies were not enough unless no, the church right. can, can actually change. Yeah. And, yeah. Tell me a bit more about that kind of that passion of yours to, to, to yeah. see that cultural change. I, I think it's fundamental, be, and I think I think having learned about the Church of England, I think it needs to understand how structurally it's. If you wanted to construct an organisation which um, a paedophile wanted to get in because it gave them access to children or somebody who wants to exploit adults it would be the Church of England because it's got um, I mean I don't for one minute say that you know command and control organisations actually always achieve it clearly they don't but when you've got the element of power that diocesan bishops have with relatively little accountability coupled with the inevitable deference which goes to somebody in that level of power and no formal structures and processes to hold that to account or even to have some oversight I mean we can use those sometimes use those terms interchangeably then you know that's worrying because um, what this is fundamentally requires it requires everybody of goodwill <laughs> to have their eyes open mm -hmm. and to act when they see something and I know for a lot of survivors um, and for the families of survivors it's like but people always knew there was something dodgy but people didn't know what to do or didn't challenge and or my own experience of undertaking investigations or overseeing investigations to social work staff who who were abusing people you know, you see that people have raised issues before in one way or another, it's not been tackled because it was deemed too difficult or some, they allowed them to move on to another thing. We have to recognise that this is not easy, but we have to create a culture in which people know what they should be concerned about, can check it out with somebody without feeling that, you know, everything massively is going to change or I've got to go straight to the... You know, we, we need that kind of culture. We need it in society, not just in the church, but we need it in uh, where people don't turn away, raise issues, raise concern, and understand the kind of things they should be worried about. I mean, fundamentally, it, it's like other crimes of, um, of which happen between two people it's very diff difficult to get evidence in what what you see in um, abuse of children or abuse of, of, of uh, vulnerable people is it's an abuse of power and I think the church has got to have a conversation about power it's got to say that if somebody is in a powerful position the amount of scrutiny and holding to account has to be um, as much and that doesn't necessarily mean that 
bishops therefore should be held more accountable than a vicar in a parish church because by its very nature depending upon a particular church a vicar could equally in terms of the people who would see them as and defer to them they could equally be powerful so there has to be a recognition of that and I think there's got to be a, a discussion about the difference between the role somebody holds and the deference that may be due to that and we all hope I don't you know I'm making no comment as to, we all hope that people have arrived in those positions because you know they are good people and they do do good things and they do meet whatever you know you would say the requirements were to be a bishop or a, you know archdeacon or whatever the many titles that exist yeah. um, but actually those people too have to say I need to be accountable and I'm going to be transparent about what I do because you know they have to model that and so having people who make decisions that they don't explain that they aren't held accountable it's just not acceptable and I think in society generally we've we've understood that more um, and I think the church has to understand that and they have to have that conversation and it's always difficult because um, it may mean giving up some power it probably will um, but it certainly means being willing to explain and to be transparent about it because as I say my uh, my cousin's children were abused because the you know, the local priest would waft into the school yeah. and say oh I need some little girls to help me with them and disappear off with four or five little girls and you know I'm talking kids at the age of four and five and nobody but nobody question that I mean the first indication that my cousin's wife had was she found out that um, which and um, even then nothing about abuse but that, that the child had been allowed to go out and cross the road and go to the shops which is not something they would have done at home and it's just kind of that sense of father this or mm. reverend there you know no it's not acceptable so given what you said about that kind of um, mm. the kind of power of power as it were yeah and um, and a lot of this kind of topic mm. and that idea of kind of clericalism has come up in, mm. in the extra inquiry, which I'm, I'm sure you've been mm. looking at. But um, what do you? What is your view in, in that case then of of what the survivors, many of the survivors, are calling for, mm. which is an, an independent safeguarding body to actually hold the the church itself independently to account on these issues. I mean, I think it's. I think this issue about whether something should be external or internal is always interesting to debate about what are the positives and negatives for and at this stage I wouldn't say that I have a strong view either way where I do have a view is I I think that regardless of whether you had somebody externally or internally uh, however that works uh, what you because there, there's been there is a bit of a debate about whether their, the diocesan safeguarding advisors should be employed centrally or within the, the diocese. I think they should be employed within the diocese because I think if it all comes from outside you will not change the culture. You need everybody to understand that this is fundamentally it's part, I mean, you know, how anybody can possibly begin to think that a, a Christian church wouldn't have the safeguarding of vulnerable people at its heart is just beyond me. So, so I think they have to own that. I think they have to understand that. I think there should be common standards and policies and procedures to which they, you know, they respond. I think where it's complex and where 
more thinking needs to be done is how is that overseen and how is that held to account now what's been happening up to now is there's been these audits being done by the social care institute for excellence which i think are good um but i still think and they do tell you a lot about some of the issues and i think addressing those is very important but i also think more thinking needs to be done about what does safeguarding mean within the church because there can be a bit of a tendency to think well this is what a local authority would do on safeguarding um, and to set up structures which mirror that but a church isn't a local authority you've got that mix of office holders um, you know the clergy people like that some of the sort of lay people are also office holders then you've got people who are employed who will be subject to employment responsibilities uh, and then you've got a whole mass of volunteers so you can't replicate that and, and I don't think that anybody as yet has really sort of understood all of that because I mean I absolutely fundamentally understand why people say um, these people should be told you've got to do x y and z and somebody external so that should check on it I mean that's how you would run a lot of organizations but the Church of England isn't one organisation and um, trying to get I mean I I don't think it's likely to happen anyway and trying to spend your time trying to get the Church of England to be one organisation it's kind of well I'm appointed for three years possibly renewable for two it's not you know it but I think some of that thinking some of those conversations and that clarity needs to happen and for me the panel ought to be playing a role in that because um, I think as we develop our work what we need to be doing is bringing in those comparisons and seeing where something does fit with what the church does learning from others looking at different systems and the like but also I think the church needs to find its own way through for its very different arrangements than you know statutory organizations it's not a statutory organization in that sense you know it's it's and I think I think there are two things which make it very very different when you go to church actually almost like the church is asking you to bring your vulnerabilities you're inviting people in their their vulnerable state you know like I say the the day my mum died, you know, in the afternoon I walked round into the cathedral, you know, it's kind of like, I didn't particularly talk to anybody, but it might have done, you know, mm-hmm. you go there with your vulnerabilities, um, and so it's not like being a member of any other organisation in a way, and there's the faith element to that, and, um, you know, the way that faith issues are mediated, and it's one of the reasons that, uh, that abuse, clerical abuse, whatever term you want to use, is so devastating, because like every other form of abuse it's an abuse of power but in in addition it's an abuse of faith and you know how do you how do you deal with that um it's it's that emotional side particularly i mean for everybody but for vulnerable people for children who are just trying to get their ideas about the world i mean if if these people you've been told are good and you can't trust them then who can you trust and the world becomes an extremely um scary place really so um that's a long way from your question about whether you should have a a body outside i think uh, i'm 
I mean, I'm open to discussing all of these ideas. Um, I'm open to looking at it, but I think it's it's got to be what works. Yes, the church does need to change. The culture needs to change fundamentally. It will need to change some of the way it does things. Um, the clergy disciplinary measure doesn't seem to be fit for purpose in terms of safeguarding. Yes. Um, I think I think there is an awareness of this so there's some fundamental things which will need to change um, but is is it going to change into being like other organizations then no I don't think it it, it will be um, so fundamentally it needs to be open to having all the conversations and I'm meeting the people who are open yeah. to that. Um, I don't tend to meet at the moment through, you know, going through the various groups. I'm inevitably meeting the people who are engaged on sure, these issues, yeah. and um, and a lot of people are very engaged on these issues and really care about it. Um, mm. But um, I'm sure there's also other people who don't, mm. and I'm not meeting them. And so, sure. uh, as yet, yeah, <laughs> who, sure. who knows? Over time, that well, I'm sure, sure it will happen. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned um, briefly the clergy discipline. Yeah. which I was going to ask you about um, just, just briefly, what is your I mean, obviously a lot of people said it's not fit for purpose, mm. is that your view as well? Um, I've again, I've been learning about yeah. it um, and it seems to me that safeguarding um, issues require particular responses and a particular way of dealing with that whether those responses and, and the like could be are equally the same for other sort of complaints. I would doubt it really. Um, so I would. Uh, I think that's something I'd be very keen for the panel to look at. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, and what's your view on mandatory reporting? This is interesting because when people say mandatory reporting, they mean different things. Yeah. It is. It was always my expectation and understanding when I worked for local authorities that I was required to report and I think that's mandate that is mandatory reporting um, so when somebody first suggested to me that we weren't required I was like what do you mean we're not required to report and, and I think I think the, the view in the church is the same um, but do I think it should be put in law that it is a criminal offence not to report. I think it's problematic. Um, I would be willing, obviously, to have that conversation and to and to discuss it. But I think there's there's a whole range of issues that you have to look at. There's an issue about when people begin to disclose, particularly past abuse. Um, what do they think's going to happen? I, I mean, I remember a case that we dealt with when I worked within um, one local authority where it took maybe four or five weeks with phone calls over a period, somebody testing out and bringing up and, and building confidence. Now, obviously, what everybody rightly is concerned about is that if somebody is disclosing something about a person who perhaps still may be abusing somebody then you know they want to get that information as quickly as possible but you know that's you know, it's not always possible and um, I think there's implications around that I think the other thing is that for a lot of people if we, if we want a church or even a society to go more widely where people feel that that doesn't look right 
or I'm concerned about, then you want them to feel that they can talk to somebody about without things escalating beyond very, very quickly. And there are some things which I don't like the look of that or I don't think, you know, what, what, what is this? You, you then struggle with how you define a suspicion, how you, and my worry would be that it, I don't know, there may be evidence different to this, but my worry would be that it would be a disincentive to people raising low-level concerns, which actually might lead to something else being um, uh, being looked at. Whereas, I mean, it was certainly the case when I was, um, I remember one case where we had some low-level concerns which were reported to us, um, we kept a record of it we didn't have enough on which it was just like and again people often go I'm not quite sure about this and I think and then they back off and but then when we got another refer about the same person because it was building up a picture we were then able to act and to bring in the police etc etc uh, and ultimately this uh, it was a head teacher of a local school was convicted and you know we went the whole way through and so I think that whole landscape is complex and I I think, I think that people, when they get a very clear disclosure about um, abuse of any kind or vulnerable people, then they need to report it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but should we make it a legal, um, you know, a criminal offence? I'm, I'm far from convinced. So we, we've talked um, a lot about what the church has done in the past oh. and what it's doing now. Um, a lot of what we've been talking about is kind of based on trust between, mm. you know, kind of trusting the church and trusting people and authority. And mm. um, obviously, you've worked um, closely with these survivors and, and in your career as well. And mm. um, what what is it going to take, or is it even possible to build up that trust again between the church and its not only its survivors but also congregations and and that kind of perception of the church as um, as potentially dangerous for, for mm. young people. I think unless the church is getting it right now, unless it has done everything it possibly can in terms of uh, preventative measures, in terms of having processes that to the best that anybody can expect checks out the people who are being put into positions of responsibilities and has systems in place which hold them to account and you know deal with concerns then that trust can never be built up do you ever want people to think when i go to church that i don't have to worry about somebody abusing me well i'd say you should never you know i don't think people should go around being scared but you know I think I'd want every parent every you know carer every friend of a vulnerable person to know what to look for because unfortunately there are a huge amount of people in our society who have done will do bad things to other people in that whole range of things and um, we need to be vigilant about that. Um, I mean, people who employ social workers, carers, etc., have got a lot better at their interviewing process. We obviously have the uh, disclosure and barring service, but you know, I mean, the reality is that the vast majority of people who abuse have never been convicted. It's only going to that shouldn't make you feel safer. So um, it's that ability to uh, to 
to be in a, a place which says actually this matters to us so like for example I I was at my church for uh, on one occasion we'd only got one child who'd come to the church and was going to Sunday school and it came to the point when the kids went out to uh, to the Sunday school and two adults went and and, uh, and I said oh poor I said to one of them oh poor child having having two two adults yeah. with them there and and she just said to me safeguarding yeah. and so it was so natural to her and so natural to everybody else that the Sunday school it didn't matter that there was only one child they still did what they were expected to do and the notices are there and people know it. and I think when the churches first started taking uh, taking this on board and I know it's a big issue in the Methodist church was like if you're doing that you've got to be trained it's, oh god do we really have to do it and some people are saying no way am I doing that means you're thinking I'm I'm yeah, an abuser exactly, yeah. and I think I think we want everybody in the church to think we have to do this not because anybody thinks I'm an abuser or everybody is likely to be an abuser but because abusers will target vulnerable people within our church and if we are to live out you know our values and beliefs and our faith then we absolutely have to have the policies and processes and training in in place uh, that makes that less likely you're never going to stop it 100% but we can do a lot more and you know as I say the devastation that's caused by that impact is just it's it's well it's inhuman sure thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times you can try your first 10 issues for just £10 You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.